Get your Bibles out tonight. Thanks, worship team. FGC unplugged. Next week, we're going to do a mariachi band. little diversity. I got the sombrero for it. I'm going to give it a try. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. Working our way through the Hall of Fame of Faith. Looking at everyone who's in here. Discovering why they're included in here, the acts of faith that caught the attention of God. Do you know you can catch God's attention? You know, not that he's not mindful of us and not that he doesn't know the hairs on our head and he knows every detail about us, yet there are certain things we can do that please his heart so much that we catch his attention and we bless him, amen? I don't know about you, but I want that to be the goal of every day of my life. It's to bless my heavenly Father, amen, to catch his attention, to let my faith uh, and my trust in him uh, just warm his heart as a father. When you're a father and you have a child that trusts you and that respects you and honors you and wants to please you, it's a blessing, amen, and that's how we should approach our heavenly father. So here we are in Hebrews 11. These people have caught God's attention. They're included in the hall of fame of faith, and uh, last time we were together, we We looked at verse 30, and we talked about Jericho, and we mentioned Rahab. This week, we're going to talk about Rahab. My wife said to me last time, I wish you would have gave more detail on Rahab, so we're going to give her a whole message tonight in verse 31, chronicles her inclusion into the Hall of Fame of Faith, and I'm going to read 30 and 31 to you in just a minute, and then we're going to jump in as I bless the word. Father, thank you for the word tonight. Thank you for these people who come to hear your word, Lord. They're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Father, send them home satisfied tonight. Holy Spirit, open up the word to us and allow us to uh, see the details and uh, all the uh, things that you have done and all the things that you have noticed about man. And Father, help us to increase, Lord, in our faith. Father, that's the goal of this study, is that our faith would be stimulated in a way that would be pleasing to you. I ask this in Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen. Verse 30 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, and they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. One more time, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So Rahab is just mentioned here in one verse. We mentioned that she was a harlot, a prostitute. There are two women mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith. One was a princess and one was a prostitute, showing that God can use anybody from any area in life once he catches hold of them, amen? Our our lifestyle, our sin, our bad decisions don't disqualify us from being used by God. And that should be good news for us tonight, amen? None of us have a perfect past, and the enemy loves to dangle our past in front of us, but God's not concerned about our past. He's concerned about the faith in our present, amen? 
And he can use anyone. He uses Rahab here in a powerful way. And he includes her in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now, uh, we covered her very briefly in the last uh, session because she was mentioned in the role of Israel's victory at the Battle of Jericho. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that message online, get it in your spirit. God did such amazing things at Jericho there. And, uh, you know, he showed uh, Joshua and the priests and, and the people of Israel all got to share in the victory he brought. Leveled those walls flat so they walked straight in, not over a rubble pile, not over debris, not hard uphill fighting. No, they walked straight in and took the city. God did an amazing thing. But getting more detail about Rahab and looking at verse 31, there's still not that much there. Uh, if we explore her inclusion in the Hall of Fame of Faith here, we've got to look at Joshua 2, 1 through 24. Um, so if you have your Bibles out and you want to turn there, I'm going to have Sister Kim read Joshua 2, uh, verses 1 through 14, and then later I'm going to have her read the rest of the chapter. But Joshua 2 tells all about Rahab and her exploits and what she did and how God honored it. And so Joshua 2, uh, 1 through 14. <laughs> Joshua 2. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Amen. So there's the first part of what was done there. Now, the children of Israel were possessing the land. Now, when you think about God giving you something, uh, you think about him just kind of handing it to you as a present. Amen? 
but yet the land that they were possessing was occupied, and they had to fight to take it. How many like presents like that? Here's your birthday present. You got to go to the store and fight the sales clerk for it. But this is what their part was in the matter here. There were people that were there. They're possessing the land. God promised them the land. Yet the Canaanites were squatting on the land that was promised to the children of Israel. They were enjoying the blessings that belonged to God's people. Now, they weren't a godly people, and that's the issue there. The Canaanites were a perverse, ungodly people. They were entrenched in the worst of sins. They wouldn't repent of those sins, and they categorically refused to recognize, much less worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these people were diametrically opposed to the children of Israel. Now, the Canaanites practiced the the worst of sin. They They were involved in child sacrifice. They would do what was called passing their children through the fire. They would throw newborn babies into fire and offer them to their fertility gods. They were involved in so much sexual perversion and idol worship and the things that they did for rituals and the immorality. I mean, they pushed the envelope. Everything that was sinful known to man, they did it. Now, their worship and their culture was so wicked in God's sight that he was planning to judge them decisively for it, and he was going to use the children of Israel to do it, and he was going to allow them to possess the land. Now, I find it interesting here that some of the things that these ungodly nations did are now, uh, you know, some of the same sins that we do in America. We don't throw our children into the fire. We just call it abortion now. We, every immoral lifestyle, every sexual practice that the Bible condemns is now mainstream. And if you don't accept it, well, then you're this, that, and the other thing. How the Canaanites receive judgment and destruction for what they did. How can we escape it as a nation? It's quiet, isn't it? We need, as a church, to be salt and light, amen? Our culture needs to change in America. We do the worst of sins, the same things that the Canaanites practice. How will we escape the judgment of God? In verse 1, Joshua sends spies to gather intel on the land. This is what they did before they possessed an area, they would go in and they would probe it and they wanted to see, you know, who was there, what kind of people they were, were they industrious, were they militarized, did they have large standing armies. He sends spies in to, you know, prepare to possess possess the land and he wanted them to pay special attention to Jericho. That was the premier area that they were looking at. Now, the two spies in an attempt to keep a low profile entered into a brothel in Jericho. Now, this was maybe a high-traffic place where a lot of strangers would go in and out, and they figured, hey, we can slip in here. We can, we can view the city. We can get some in, uh, intel from this lady, you know, and, and we'll just slip in and we'll sh- slip out. It's, you know, they're doing shady things. They're spying. And so they go to a shady place, and they, they want to just assess the condition of the city and its people. In verse 2, their cover is immediately blown. You know, I don't know, these guys better go back to spy school. Because it says here that the king was made aware of both their presence and intent. It's like, you know, how did that happen so quick? They just showed up. They slip into a shady place. Apparently, you know, the people there noticed them, or somehow, some way, they got found out immediately. And the king knows who they are and what they're doing there. 
This is, you know, this is the, the worst case scenario for a spy here to be totally busted and in a foreign city and now everybody knows about you. In verse 3, the king comes to Rahab's door and, and there are people there that demand the spies be brought out of her house and turned over to them. So it's, it's, a, it's a tense moment. It's a life or death moment here. The spies are in the worst possible position. They're busted. They're uncovered. Now they're facing interrogation, torture, and death. I mean, it can't get any worse for them at this point. They're in trouble and they need help. Verse four chronicles the most pivotal moment in Rahab's life. She has to quickly pick a side in this conflict and make a life and death decision for herself. Whatever side she chooses, it has implications for her. She either gives up the spies to the king and cuts herself off from the salvation of God because she knows about the God of Israel, and we're going to see that there is faith in her heart there already. She either turns these guys over and cuts herself off from God and loses her soul, or she puts her own neck on the line and she hides them by deceiving her own people. How many understand that's probably the most difficult spot any of us could ever be in? In fact, a lot of us have maybe have never been in a a spot like this where we had to make a life or death decision. And so God is watching very closely here, and he's, uh, you know, the ball's in her court. Now it's up to her. The lives of these two spies, they are in her hands. Um, she has to make this decision in verse uh, 3b through 6, the latter half of verse 3. Rahab hides the spies and chooses to deceive her own king and countrymen. And, you know, so she, she, you know, she gives him a story and she feeds it to him. She makes this choice. Uh, she had that choice. She could have gave them up. She had them tucked away, but she doesn't choose that. She chooses righteousness over wickedness. Uh, she says, to them, well, they just left here. If you pursue them quickly, you can catch them. Isn't that, isn't that uh, savvy? It's a nice way to say it. Sending them on a wild goose chase. Yeah, go. Oh, they, went, they went that way. And, you know, she makes that choice. Yeah, if you, if you go now, you can catch them, you know. Uh, and she misdirects them, and she sends the search party on a wild goose chase, and they're, they're never going to find them. Why? Because, you know, she's got them tucked away. She gives the spies time to escape by sending the men who are seeking them out on that wild goose chase. Realize this is a savvy move. It's a decisive move. She chooses to deceive her own king and countrymen, and in doing so, she puts her neck on the chopping block. See, this is why God honors her faith, because it took great faith to make that decision. Rahab, in verses 6 through 7, had preemptively hidden the men. What does that mean? You know, there must have been a hustle and bustle. There must have been a buzz about, oh, there's these guys here, and we think they're from Israel, and they're spying out the land. She heard, maybe before the king heard, and preemptively she made the decision to choose righteousness, amen? And she hid them away on her roof in bales of flax. So understand, you and I need to make preemptive decisions to do the right thing. Sometimes before we're in the heat of the moment. You know, we need to decide what we're going to do about Jesus, how we're going to handle persecution, what we would do if our business was on the line, if our life was on the line, if our job was on the line. Come on, somebody. You know, we get in these spots, and we haven't thought it through, but, you know, we need to come to that spot where, where Joshua, when he made that pro proclamation, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
Come hell or high water, I choose Jesus, amen? And hopefully you've made that choice too. When we've chosen Jesus, there's, there's no plan B. Whatever comes, persecution, martyrdom, we've got to stand for Christ. She made a preemptive decision to hide these guys. And even before the king and his men are knocking on the door there, she's got them tucked away and she's got them hidden. And they buy her story and they fall for the bait and they go out of the gate and they, who knows where they looked. Some went right, some went left. They looked everywhere and to find them. And as we know, they're not going to be found because they are tucked away in Rahab's roof. Now, in verse 8 through 11, she pours her heart out, and Rahab actually gives the spy some really valuable intelligence here. This is, what she tells them is exactly what Joshua wanted to know, and it's the reason he sent the spies out in the first place. Uh, when you look in at in, in verse 8 through 11, I hope your Bibles are open and you're following along with me, she gives them this information, and Joshua wanted to know some things about Jericho, and not just their military capabilities, not just the terrain features or their defenses, but he, he wants to know their psychological state. And knowing your enemy's psychological state, what he's thinking, allows you to exploit the enemy. Rahab reveals that the psychological state of those who were defending Jericho is that they were paralyzed with fear because of the children of Israel. Don't you think that's something that Joshua wants to know? Don't you think that's something the people of God want to know? That, that, you know, they might think, well, Jericho, maybe they're tough. Maybe they're giants. Maybe they're, they're warlike people. You know, uh, this is Sparta, and we're going to get kicked down a well, and we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but no, the report is that, you know what, they're, they're terrified of the people of God. Now, that's very valuable information there. Uh, it says here, Te the terror of you, who? The children of Israel. The terror of you has fallen on us, Rahab says, and that all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. The presence of fear is a huge asset uh, in both natural and spiritual warfare. Do you understand that? In natural warfare, if your enemy is afraid of you, you have a distinct advantage over him. In spiritual warfare, if we embrace fear, the devil has a, a distinct advantage over us. Fear is a very powerful component in any kind of warfare. And what is being expressed here is that these people are shaken in their boots with fear because of the children of God. Now, Rahab, uh, you know, communicates that to them. And fear is something that you never want in your own camp, but you want it in the camp of your enemy understand that this is the best case scenario for them why wouldn't you want you know uh, fear in your camp because fear causes armies to flee instead of fight we've seen it over and over in scripture there's times where god confused the enemy and they fought each other and they killed one another or they they heard a noise and they ran away because of fear so fear causes enemies to flee instead of fight fear causes uh people to turn on their leaders and to turn on each other instead of facing their enemies. Fear causes armies to lose battles even when they have all the advantages. Fear is a powerful component here. Now, in verse 9, I want you to look at verse 9. Notice Rahab makes an incredibly powerful statement of faith 
in verse 9. And she said to them, the men, I know, listen to this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. Look at that. I know that the Lord has given you the land. How does she know that? She's already had some sort of encounter with the God of Israel or she's convinced in her spirit somehow, some way that before the fight is even started that God is gonna give the land to the children of Israel. That's great faith. You know, I'm sure there was a large portion of the army and the leadership in Israel that didn't have as much faith as this woman. You're thinking, oh, is Joshua gonna be able to pull this one off? Are we gonna, you know, we're you maybe you know, we're licking our wounds from the last battle. We're tired, we need a break. You know, do we have it in us? All that fear and all that doubt that creeps into the hearts of men. Yet here is Rahab, and she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. What an incredible statement of faith. In verses uh, 10 through 11, Rahab explains exactly why those defending Jericho are terrified of Israel. It's because of what they've heard. You know, uh, we all hear things about people, about situations. Maybe you've heard things about a neighbor. You hear things about your boss. And what you hear about them shapes your attitude towards them. And, you know, whether you're positive about interacting with them or fearful, you know, they have heard some things in verses 10 and 11. He says, for we have heard, there it is, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we have heard these reports, verse 11 says, our hearts melted and no courage remained in anyone any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Woo! That's pretty good faith for a heathen prostitute right there. Amen? It's more than a lot of Christians have. She has faith in the God of heaven and earth. And she says, you know what? We heard some things. And the two things they heard is this. Number one, they heard what God did for the children of Israel concerning Egypt. And what was it in particular? That he dried up the Red Sea before you. You see, they didn't come through Egypt via 10 plagues and, and, and Pharaoh's uh, firstborn being dead and Pharaoh's army being judged. They didn't come through all of those things without a reputation. And everyone in the region had heard about what God had done for them. You say, well, well, you know, they would just think it's a myth. They would just think it's folklore. No, Egypt took a big whack when the children of, uh, when the children of God came out. Why? Because their army was utterly destroyed. Their Pharaoh was, you know, had a, had a dead son. The firstborn had been wiped out through Egypt. There was financial destruction that took place. You know, when the, God's people came out, they came out with gold and silver and back pay for all the years of slavery. Come on, you know the scripture? So Egypt took a big whack, and throughout the region, everyone had heard about it. And these guys had heard about it. And all of that stuff that they heard, the thing that stuck out the most was that God dried up the Red Sea before you. The 10 plagues were magnificent. They were liberated from Egypt. They had this reputation in the region, but it was the parting of the Red Sea that was most terrifying to, to the enemies of God's people. Why? Because they understood that the children of Israel served a God who had power over the heavens and the earth. 
He wasn't just a, an idol carved out of a block of wood. He wasn't just a stone statue that they offered things to. This was the God who could part the Red Sea and have millions of people walk across on dry land and then drown Pharaoh's entire army. That's terrifying. You want to be on that team. You don't want to be on the other team. And they knew it. They had heard about it. It was more than just folklore. There was evidence of what God had done. Now, I'm sure they'd heard about how miraculously God had protected his people and all these things, but it was the Red Sea, and it was the testimony of what God had done in crossing there. Now, I want to say something about testimonies. Our testimonies are powerful. The testimony of what God did for Israel was powerful enough to intimidate its enemies and to put fear in them. Our testimonies of what God has done for us are powerful enough to put fear into our enemy. And they're powerful enough to break through the walls of the people who are on the outside looking in that we love, that we want to share the gospel with. Share your testimony. Tell people what God has done for you. Don't argue about theology. Don't argue about scriptures. Don't, don't argue about denominations. Share your testimony. Testimonies are powerful. They can put fear in the enemy, and they can set captives free. And so the testimony of what God did there for them parting the Red Sea was the first thing that they heard, but they'd heard a second thing. What? The second thing they heard is what you guys did to Shihon and Og, the, the kings of the Amorites. And these were two kings that you know, stood in the way of Israel, and, and Israel dealt with them. Now, notice the first thing they looked at, they said, it's what your God did when he parted the Red Sea. But then they're kind of saying, and it's how you guys, as a people, handled those two kings when you faced them. So let's take a look at Sihon. Sihon was the king of the Amorites, and he ruled the region of Hezbon. Israel makes a simple request of him. They didn't say, you know, abandon your house, get out of your land, we're taking your stuff. They said, can we just pass through your territory? Simple request, right? Nothing, not going to cost them anything. Can we basically walk down the king's road and go through your territory? Listen to the account here in Numbers 21 through 25. Then Israel sent messages to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into a field or a vineyard. We're not going to eat your food. We're not going to take your crops. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's road until we have passed through your border. Verse 23, but Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. Instead, Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Verse 24, then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from Aaron to Jabbok and as far as the sons of Ammon. For the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazar. Israel took all these cities and Israel lived in all these cities of the Amorites in Heshbon in all her villages. So a simple request and it's met with violence. Do you know there's an anti-Semitic hatred for the people of God that still exists today? And anti-Semitism is linked to an antichrist spirit. Don't think for a minute it's all directed at the Jews. It's also directed at Christians. 
and they hated the people of God, and still that spirit exists in the world today. They said, just let us pass through. We're not going to eat your food. We're not going to drink your water. We just want to pass through. And they're met with violence. Now, the Sion, he musters his army, and he, he fights them. But Israel beats them so decisively in battle with this result. They kill the king. Sion is dead. They kill his entire family. They totally crush his army, and they take possession of every square inch of his territory. Israel's got a reputation. It wasn't a, it wasn't a pitched battle. It was a one-sided battle. The king didn't survive. They killed him. All the king's family wiped out. No chance of them coming back. Took every square inch of their territory, and they have no army anymore. Wow. That's what happened to Sihon. And Rahab is saying, we heard what you did to Sihon. How about Og? Uh, apparently, he is the original OG because his name is Og. He was a gangster. But he's about to get his here. Let's take a look at Og. Og was another Amorite king, and he ruled the region of Basham. Og doesn't learn a thing from Sihon's encounter with the people of God. See, and that's the way wickedness is. That's the way sin is. Pride elevates people to such a point where they can't learn from an obvious lesson. Sihon got totally routed, totally wiped out. He, he doesn't draw breath anymore, and everything he had is now Israel's. And Og says, well, I'll give it a go. And he doesn't learn a thing from what happened to Sihon. Uh, his encounter with them doesn't teach them anything. Numbers 21, 33 through 35, tell us the tale of the encounter that Israel has with Og. Now, remember, this is after they've routed Sion and taken their territory. Numbers 21, 33 through 35. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them with all his people for battle at Endrai. So, you know, right away, they, they hate Israel. They don't want to let them pass through. They, they're taking territory, and this guy doesn't even try and negotiate. He doesn't even see what they want. He just immediately musters his army, and he takes the fight to them. It says in verse 34, listen to this. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have handed him over to you and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you have done to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So God tells Joshua, hey, you know what? This guy's just a, he's just a windbag. I want to do the same thing to him for you that I did to this other king, and Israel faces off against them. There again, there's no fear in Israel because God has assured them of victory. In verse 35, it says, so they killed him, Og, and his sons and all his people until there were no survivors left and they took possession of all his land. Are you seeing a pattern here? Well, Rahab saw a pattern too. And she was humble enough to realize that the God that Israel serves is the God of heaven and earth. That the God of, who Israel serves is not a, a deaf, dumb, mute idol made of stone, rock, or wood. He is the living God. He can control the tide and the current. He can part seas. He can rout enemies. He clears the way before his people. They've done it twice here. When they came out of Egypt, it was 10 plagues, and now they're facing their enemies, and they're obliterating them. <laughs> and she's like, you know what? I, I, I believe in your God. And 
we saw what you did to Sihon and what you did to Og, and you know what? The people are petrified because they don't want that to happen here. Now, in verses 12 through 14, uh, Rahab expresses that, you know, uh, she has faith in God. Verse 11 uh, tells the conclusion of the defenders of Jericho why they're afraid. It's because the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and earth below. And 12 and 14, Rahab, now she, she gets to the place where she's expressed her faith. She knows that God's going to give them the land. They, she knows that their God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and she wants to broker a deal with the spies. And the deal is this. She wants her family spared from the judgment that's about to consume Jericho. Isn't it a smart thing when you know the God of heaven and earth is about to judge something that you would broker a deal that would allow you to escape that judgment? Noah's generation wasn't smart enough to do that. They made fun of Noah. They didn't want to listen to Noah. Noah's an idiot building an ark for what? We don't know. And he was a joke, and it was funny until it started to rain. See, in Rahab's heart, she had faith, and it had already started to get cloudy and was about to rain, and she didn't want any part of the judgment that was going to fall on this wicked people. She tries to broker a deal, and her deal is very simply, she wants to be spared. She said, you know what? I want you to save my household, my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them. What Rahab's faith purchased here was household salvation, and I want you to see that. She wanted her house saved. And you know what? Uh, one act of faith can save a whole household. We've seen it with Noah. We see it here with Rahab. We see it over and over again. We see it in the New Testament. Someone who's a key person gets saved. He, them and their whole house get saved. Paul goes out. Peter goes out. You see household salvation. How does that happen? By faith. It's just one person's faith. Now, this woman has faith. It didn't say her mother believed. It didn't say her father, her sisters, her brother, or all their kids, or all who belonged to them. No, it was Rahab's faith that saved her whole house because she was wise enough to see who God was, and she was humble enough to avoid the judgment by brokering a deal with God's people. Verse 14, the spy's response to her is very clear. Our life for yours. I like these Israeli spies here. They're, they just cut to the chase. They don't say, well, let's get some ink and paper out and they make a deal. No. They say, hey, our life for yours. Because you know what? You got us hidden up here in the flax, and we're dead if you turn us in. So it's simple. You let us go. You get us out of here. Your life is spared. It's a deal. And... Basically, it's an if-then covenant there. If you do your part and keep silent about our plans, we'll make sure your family is spared when we take the land and we'll deal kindly with you. It's a simple agreement in the form of an if-then covenant. God makes if-then covenants with his people a lot, and there's still if-then covenants that are done today. If God says, if you do this, I'll do that, you got to do your part. Don't get mad at God if it doesn't go your way, if you didn't do your part. If as soon as they left, Rahab ran to the king and said, oh, I was just kidding. You know, they were on my roof, but, you know, here, here they are. Go get them now. God was still going to give the land over to Israel because that had been predestined. But her life would have been lost if she didn't keep her part. God deals with people's 
uh, lives like this all throughout Israel's history. If you do your part, I'll do my part. Now, there are some covenants that are not if-then covenants, and God stays faithful to them even when we don't do our part. How many are thankful for grace? How many are thankful tonight that God didn't say, well, if Rick, if you serve me perfectly and don't make any mistakes, then you can go to heaven? No. The covenant that's written in our hearts is a grace covenant, amen? And Jesus did all the heavy lifting, and all we have to do is believe in him, and he counts it unto us as righteousness. But this is is not one of those covenants. It's an if-then. Even the grace covenant that we now enjoy where God's done all the work and Jesus did all the heavy lifting on the cross, we still have a part to play in serving God, amen? Now, like we said, Jesus did all the work and, you know, grace is a wonderful thing, but we can't live like the devil Monday through Saturday and then go to church on Sunday and expect to have the fullness of God's blessings in our lives. This is something Christians need to hear, amen? Well, you know, I go to church on Sunday, I go on Wednesday, but the rest of the week I live like the devil. (laughs) I'm drinking, I'm cursing, I'm arguing, I'm nasty, I'm cutting people off in traffic. Saying, you've been following me around? See, there are people who do that, and they come to church and they play church. You know what, even as a very young man, God had given me a very powerful spirit of discernment that I could discern who was playing and who was real. And I'm telling you, even as a young man, I'd get around pastors and I'd be like, this guy's, this guy ain't right. And eventually it would come out doing bad stuff, sexual misconduct, misappropriating funds. Well, how do we, how do we discern that? How do we smell that? We get close enough to God that the Holy Spirit protects us from getting involved with people that, but it's if then. We still have to do certain things as children of God, not to earn our salvation, but to prove that we are saved and that we are walking humbly with our God, amen? We still need to seek him every day. We still need to serve him. You and I can't just do whatever we want, This is not a popular message to preach. Listen, as a pastor, everybody knows I can't just do whatever I want. Everything I do is under a microscope, and everything I say is under a microscope, and if I I have a misstep or say something or do something wrong, it has a ripple effect through this church and through the body of Christ. But so does it for you. Maybe on a smaller scale or maybe not right away, but we still have to serve him and we still have to do what he has called us to do. We need to embrace personal holiness. We need to restrain the appetites of our flesh. All of us have different appetites. We're weak in certain areas and strong in others, but God calls us what? To restrain our flesh and to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and to follow him. We're still called to do the works of righteousness, even though they don't save us. We're called to do them. Listen, none of this saves us, but it proves that we're saved that we serve him, that we follow him, that we embrace holiness, that we pray. Come on tonight. Amen. I know it's tough. I know we would just like to say the magic prayer and amen, and I'm born again, and sit down and go, ah, I'm just going to take it easy. Do what I want, you know. I don't want to be too legalistic. (laughs) But there are still requirements from us, even in a grace covenant. The if-then covenant that she embraced had requirements. She had to do some certain things, and she was certainly willing to do them. 
verses 15 through 24 give us the specific details of the agreement made between the spies and Rahab. She does her job and gets them out of Jericho safely. In verse 15, she literally ropes them out a window because her window is in the city wall. So she sent those guys on a wild goose chase. The search party is out searching, and she lowers them down by rope, and they get out. Who said serving God's not exciting? Anybody want to sign up for the Holy Ghost spy campaign? Amen. So she does her part. She gets them out of there. She ropes them down the wall. Um, Verse 18, she's told to tie a scarlet cord on your window. And then, you know, when we come to exact judgment, we'll see the scarlet cord and you're, everyone in there will be spared. So there again, the typology here is this is a type of the blood on the doorpost. Remember that? What allows us to be forgiven of sin? It's the blood of Jesus. What allowed the death angel to pass over the houses of the Hebrews when they were in Egypt, when the firstborn were being killed? It was the blood on the doorpost. What is it that's tied in Rahab's window? It's a scarlet thread. It represents the blood. How did the blood cover her house? Because she had faith. How does the blood cover our lives? Because we have faith. So, that was one of the things she had to do. You got to tie the cord in your window. Got to put the blood over your doorpost. Verse 19, she had to stay inside when the destruction came, just like the plague in Egypt, isn't it? You're seeing similarities here. When, when they came to destroy, you got to stay in your house. If anyone comes out, if they go for a walk, if they go to get something and they get killed, that's not on us, just like in Egypt. Verse 20, you need to keep your end of the covenant by being quiet about our business. You ever notice people like to talk about other people's business? Rahab had to be quiet about what she knew. Now, you know, this might not have been the hardest or the easiest thing to do. I'm not sure. But, you know, for all of us, you know, we need to find out what our business is and mind it. Amen. I'm just going to wait for that to settle in there. She knew some stuff. She had to keep her mouth closed. She had to have some integrity. And you know what? If you be quiet, you'll be spared. In verse 21 through 24, she gets a good report there. Uh, they, they go back after they had escaped. They're not caught. Uh, Rahab makes this deal. She knows to put the cord in her window. She knows to keep her family inside. She knows to keep her mouth quiet. Verses 21 through 24, they go back to Joshua and they give a good report. Now remember, when the spies were sent out for Moses, they came back and most of them had a bad report. All oh, the giants in the land, it's too tough. We can't do it. This time, the report is a good report. She said, then according to your words, so be it. So she went, she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. So the pursuers are doing their thing. They're hiding in the mountains. The pursuers enter in the gate. Now the pursuers had searched for them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. Then they reported to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, the Lord has indeed handed over to us the land. Furthermore, all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of us. Her act of faith, 
allows Israel to have an overwhelming victory in Jericho. Her, her faith then saves her and her whole household. Her faith allows them to go back with a good report to encourage the hearts of the people of God. Why is Rahab in the Hall of Fame of Faith? Because she put her neck on the line and she chose righteousness over wickedness. She betrayed her own people because she saw that God was the God of heaven and earth and that he was well able to save her and sustain her as judgment was about to fall. May we have such faith as Rahab. Amen. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight for this study here and for Hebrews 11.31 that includes this woman that some may turn their nose up at and think, you know, what in the world is she doing in there? Father, she has more faith than so many people. And we can learn so much from her. Father, no matter where we are in life, if we choose righteousness over wickedness, you forgive us and you keep us from judgment. Father, let us tie that scarlet thread of the blood of Jesus over our lives and in our hearts. Lord God, that we would not partake of the judgments that are slated for this world, but that we would keep ourselves in integrity and to serve you with all our hearts, to embrace personal holiness, to do the works of righteousness, to, to carry our crosses as Jesus instructed us, to exercise faith and to know that our God is the God of heaven and earth who parts seas and destroys the wicked kings and protects his people from plagues. We thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Give him a hand clap of praise tonight.